Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You have this media company, Impact Theory. The podcast, Impact Theory, is amazing. We're going to talk about it. You have a, a great message about creating impact and how there's essentially no excuses. Anyone can create impact. I want to talk about all of this. but And I'm going to also want to talk about what you just said. How much time do you have, by the way? Dude, let's rock, man. Whatever so, you need. So, because it's very hard to have as a goal, humility. So, where, what do you think, where do you think that started? Well, humility for me is is the easiest thing in the world because I'm really not that bright. So, I make mistakes all the time. Is that false humility? No, 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 for real. And so, I'll, I'll walk you through, and this, this is like the core of my message, and I really want people to hear this. There is a, I'll call it a a minimum requirements from an IQ standpoint. Without it, you'll never be successful. So I'm not saying that like intelligence doesn't matter and I'm not saying that I'm outright dumb. I'm just saying that when you look at the people that have had like really tremendous success, some of it has been born from raw intelligence, which I will put my partners in that position. They're, they have raw intelligence. They, They can process data faster than I can. There's just no two ways about it. So I got a 990 on my SATs. I took it twice. That's my combined score. My own mother quietly assumed I was going to fail when I went away to college. I say this as neutrally as I can. I'm just not that bright. I am not a born entrepreneur in any way, shape, or form. I definitely meet minimum requirements, though. I am smart enough. Okay, so once you're smart enough, you can learn anything you want. You just have to put in the time. So my secret power is I want to grow as a person so badly, like that's when, if you ask me what is the reason we're here, what's our mission in life, you know, all of that to me is, okay, humans are the ultimate adaptation machine. More than any other species, we can adapt to our environment or we can adapt to stressors. So you can put yourself in any environment, you can get good at it if you have the will to do the work. So I have the will to do the work. Then I have the will to put the hours behind it to learn. But the other reason is you work more because you love it. Right. Like the work never ends. All right, Jay, we're rolling. Yep. Got Tom Bilyeu, uh, one of the fastest growing entrepreneurs in history. I don't care if you don't agree with me, but <laughs> if anyone grows their company 57, 57,000% in two years, that's the fa- one of the fastest growing ever. Like Warren Buffett never grew his company that fast. Wow. Yeah. 
I mean, can you think of, honestly, can you think of a company that's, so the company was Quest Nutrition, we'll talk about it, yes. but can you keep thinking of a company that's going faster? Yeah, unfortunately, so we were number two that year, so there's- Who's number one? Oh, they God. were a scam. Well, they <laughs> they have unfortunately uh, gone out of business, but- um, See? I, I, I won't say I, if they I were a scam, it. but yeah, they, uh, they, they didn't last. What was their name? I actually don't remember. So, so, but they went out of business for a reason, and it's it's I it's almost ironic that they were number one on the year that you were number two. Uh, I don't know the name of the company either, but often companies can't. They they wish for fast growth, mm. and you know sometimes unfortunately you get what you wish for. Yeah. So let's assume for a second they weren't a scam. Uh, how do you? How does anybody handle fast? This is a total tangent on what I really want to talk to you about. But how do how do you handle fast growth like that, where it's like too hard to handle? Almost universally poorly, and everyone will warn you against growing too fast. And it 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 really is a danger. And the reason it's a danger is because you cannot find the right people fast enough. You can find people fast enough. You can't find the right people, and then you can't inculcate them into the culture. And culture is everything if you want to win long term. So. All of the big mistakes that we made were because of the speed. And then we had to go behind that and clean it up. Um, and, and that wasn't always pretty. And so it's this just really painful balance that you're trying to strike between, I wanna grab market share while I can, while we've got heat, grow, grow fast. And there's gonna be a price to pay for you know sticking things together with Band-Aids and stuff. So you you have to be really cognizant to come behind it and solidify everything. So So there's a lot of things to unpack there. And I don't mean to get so in the weeds of Quest Nutrition, no, the company you started. I'm happy to be uh, You know, one thing I've noticed in my own businesses, whether I've started them or been an advisor or whatever, is there's different levels. Your business has to almost reincarnate itself. I was going to say reinvent itself, but it's not quite reinvented. It almost has to reincarnate itself, like come out of its shell like a butterfly at each one of these levels. The million revenue level, the three to five million revenue level, 10, 30 to 50, 100, 300 to 500 billion. And by reincarnate, you said you have to find the right people for each stage and make sure they're correct. Like you said, it was easy to find people, but hard to find the right people. I'll add one more thing to it, which will probably agree to it. You have to find the right you for each stage or else you need to quit. Yeah. And so like, Absolutely was, right. was there ever a point like what was, and, and, you're, and the entrepreneur is often going to be in denial of that. And we've seen this from Steve Jobs being forced out of Apple in the 80s until he reached a certain level of maturity to what's gone on at, at Uber and, and and so on. What was what was kind of like, let's even call it your, your down moment after such fast growth? So in the beginning, uh, the strategy that I was using, which was really high touch, um, almost cult of personality, right? It was, everyone could see how hard I was working and because I was working that hard, they worked that hard. And when you have that kind of trust with people and they see that you're busting your ass and they know that you're totally committed to this and they see how you make decisions when no one is looking. So they know what your heart is. That did not scale. And I didn't know how to scale that. And so there was a time where I actually got locked out of the facility because people didn't know who I was. So that was jarring. Wait, what do you mean? They, so they didn't lock you out on purpose. Yeah, yeah. So imagine there's one point where for almost two years, I was wearing a hairnet every day, lab coat, gloves, and actually making protein bars. Like I was one of the guys on the line and I was leading from the front and it was just, I had so much camaraderie and respect with the team that it was, you know, they would have just done anything. So there were times where we're making bars at 2 a.m. on a Friday, everything's going wrong. I need them to stay and they all stay. No one complains, they just do it. Fast forward a year, 18 months. Well, while you're on the line, who's making the sales calls to distribute? I'm assuming you're selling in Whole Foods, other places. Who's making? Who's visiting Whole Foods? Yes, well, visiting Whole Foods is a very specific thing that I didn't do, but um, at the time we were selling primarily online. So, but I was also doing customer support. I was also doing you know, some of the um, higher level sales, like working on white label deals and things like that. So it was just, you make protein bars, you know, say half the day, and then you do the other stuff you know, for the rest of the day. But it was, yeah, it was just, you throw an insane amount of hours at it. You work around the clock seven days a week and you get it done. So, so you're on the assembly line, um, uh, one, one of the guys making the protein bars, and I hate to go on other tangents, but I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But what got, what, when did you get locked out? You decided to put on a suit and they wouldn't let you in? No, so I was, my dad came to visit, and uh, by this point, we had, oh man, probably 300,000 square feet of facility, manufacturing, storage, all that. And um, 
I went there on a weekend and the people working the weekend shift didn't know me. And so I knocked on the door and they told me, you can't come in. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm one of the owners. And they were like, no, 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 you can't come in. You can't come in. And so finally, one of the guys that worked there who I knew knew me well because he used to work on the line with me, he finally came and said, this is one of the owners, let him in. But I just thought, this is my fault. Like I've done a bad job of scaling the culture. And so- Why? So because- uh maybe you didn't do a bad job like the, because the, uh, ideally a company's assets shouldn't be personal like you shouldn't have been a, a part of the va- you know value of the company if the, if the culture of a big company is is growing well like quest quest nutrition is is the the equity is the culture is it's it's nutritional bars because of x y and z so it almost is a good cultural thing that they didn't recognize you that you could remove yourself from the line and business still continues if that had been the case that would have been amazing but the problem is that at some point you you get to that point where you're only as good as what you write down you're only as good as the culture as it's being passed on by each individual person in the team but i had not done a good job of scaling that and making sure that everybody was saying the same thing and making sure that everybody believed in the culture because i i hadn't written it down so i know you've got the 25 point bullet system but i hadn't written that down yet so there was people that knew me and worked with me sort of felt what that was but i had never tried to like put it down memorialize it make it something that could be passed on because foolishly i was just so in it i was working on the business i was making the classic um mistake from the e-myth revisited by michael e gerber if you know him and he's like yeah, if yeah, you're working book. in your business and you're not working on it and so my um uh, that was word reincarnating myself was always about getting myself out of like the day-to-day grind of whatever it was because that i'm good at like i i I will put myself in the hardest job and I will rock it with a smile and get everyone amped up. And so that I was at that point in my journey as an entrepreneur, I was very good at that. And I could get people to rally around me, but I didn't know how to really make it a culture and make it something that another person that wasn't me could take in and then pass on to the next person. So And so how did you how did you then from that weekend on, how did you do it? It really was writing because, things down. Because by the way, this applies not all, what you're about to say applies not only to companies but to people like at any given point you know you have a group of people around you you have your 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 scene and your scene grows as well as you all improve in your careers as you all improve in your families as you all build a set of values and hopefully uh associate with each other around those values so okay sorry to interrupt no not at all it's perfect segue so you have to stop doing things just by intuition and you have to concretize everything you have to write it down you have to transmit it and you have to reinforce it and you just live in that loop so right now if you've read the book principles by ray dalio of course ray dalio is a, a friend of the podcast so an amazing human who completely changed me as a business person. And it was the one time I realized that I just had a failure of imagination. I, I didn't think that you could get an organization as large as his to abide by a principle of total transparency, candor, truth. And as soon as I read it and realized that somebody had did it, that was my four minute mile. As soon as I realized that somebody had done it, then I was ready to commit to it. Okay, so I'll play a little devil's, devil's advocate. Just as a reminder to listeners, Ray Dalio, runs Bridgewater Associates, uh, largest hedge fund in the world, wrote the book Principles, which is just an amazing book about his principles, not only of investing, but of management and managing an investment company and so on. He talks about this kind of radical transparency where anybody in the company from top to bottom can challenge him, can ask him questions and so on. But I think there's a little bit where I'm not going to say he's in denial because obviously he's created this amazingly successful company far more than anybody else i've known ever uh but he's he's the boss he was the he was the creator of the company he was the richest guy in the company there's still a little bit of fear that they've got to listen to if they come to him with a problem and he is king solomon split your baby in half they're going to split their baby in half yeah, look, this is the the greatest fear that I have as an entrepreneur, and I'm going to guess that Ray shares this. So his whole thing, the lesson that he learned, the same lesson that I've learned, which is 
you think you're right, but how do you really know that you're right? And if life slaps you around enough, you begin to realize, okay, I get these really strong feelings. I'm absolutely convicted. Like I know this is what I need to be doing. And I feel that way right now. So I'm building a media company now. I've exited Quest, building a media company. And in any endeavor like that, like, yeah, there are things that you love. There are stories that you want to tell, but how do you know that you're telling the right story in the right way to the right audience? And if you don't have people that are willing to challenge you, and I'm, I'm literally talking about an intern on their first day, I am so desperate for them to tell me what they really think. Now, you weigh everything by credibility. And if that person's never done anything in that space before, they've never had a success, then while it's still interesting to get their feedback, as I mean, there's somebody that would be watching the movie or reading the comic book or whatever, I'm going to hear that. Um, but I need to know what my blind spots are, and I'm never going to be able to find them myself. And so getting people to challenge you, like, that, that's the everything. And so I literally walk around with this crushing fear of this person thinks that I want to hear something nice when in reality, I'm so confident in myself. I'm a learner. I, um, my ego is tied entirely around getting better. So I don't mind hearing that I'm being dumb. I'm not seeing something. I even ask people to give my criticism, give it to me aggressively and in public. And the reason that I ask for that is, I, one, I want people to see that I'm not delicate and so that they can challenge me. They're not going to get fired. They're going to get thanked. And then two, I don't ever want someone to worry that like, oh, I'm going to step on his toes or I didn't want to say it because it was in front of so-and-so. Man, I, the one thing I care about and the one thing when I look back on my life that I will judge myself by was did I give it everything I had to be successful? And, and so I, I, I do want to mention, you know, you, you have this media company, Impact Theory. The podcast, Impact Theory, is amazing. We're going to talk about it, plus all the ancillary activities you're involved in. You have a, a great message about creating impact and how there's essentially no excuses. Anyone can create impact. I want to talk about all of this, but and I'm going to also want to talk about what you just said. How much time do you have, by the way? Dude, let's rock, man. What so, do you need? So, because sometimes we're, we only have 60 minutes and Jay's waving the... the you, 10 minutes left, but I have got a lot of questions for Tom here. So how do you make a protein bar? <laughs> like physically? Yeah. So this is really fascinating, at least for people in the food industry. So the reason I asked, by the way, is I used to be in the hedge fund business and and like a Ray Dalio, but a thousand times smaller. Uh, on the up days, oh, we're going to be the most successful people in the world. On the down days, I kid you not, my business partner and I every single day said, you know what, let's just sell protein bars like this investing stuff sucks yeah so i want to know now for the first time this is like 12 years later how do you uh how do you make a protein bar so first is starting with what are the ingredients that you want to put into the bar because the mistake that the industry made and this was how we built you know a billion dollar company you're talking about how fast we grew the way that we were able to grow that fast is everyone in the industry before us led with this is the equipment that exists what ingredients will run through it and so that's why the industry got in this loop of using basically high fructose corn syrup in many different forms. Because that, that was, sticks everything together so you could package it in a small package, a bar. Yeah, and even more horrifyingly subtle than that, it was for the last 70 years in lockstep with the use of um, high fructose corn syrup, you have government subsidies making that cheaper. It tastes amazing. And it gives things a certain type of pliability and a certain way that it reacts to pressure. Now, if, if that's going for 70 years, the, all the equipment that becomes commercially available is made to produce things that have high fructose corn syrup. And, and I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but there's like some technical stuff. Sure. So uh, flexible and pliability, just that feel of a bar where it's not going to like crumble in your hands when you pick it up inside the packaging. You're going you're gonna to feel it like it has substance because the, the high fructose corn syrup is, is binding your hopefully nutritious ingredients together. That, and then how does it react to pressure? What, is it, so, what does that mean? So if you think of like- Like um, if I yell at it? <laughs> uh, not that kind of pressure, like physical <laughs> downward pressure. Um, so if you take water, right, which is uncompressible. So depending on the water content in uh, whatever you're putting into your product, it will, it will dramatically impact how you're able to flatten it, how easy it is to flatten. What happens is it's trying to go through a point of pressure on a machine. Because if you're doing something like we were doing, which is slabbing the bar, you're basically putting it under these big wheels. But if the bar resists being compressed, 
Now you start breaking machinery, which is exactly what we were doing. So okay. we found that by taking out the high fructose corn syrup and putting in a um, liquid fiber, it felt the same in your hand, but it didn't react the same under pressure. And it became a very sticky. It was very hard to get it even. Uh, and if you put it under too much pressure, then the bar would begin to harden. And so everything was like these just minor, minor changes would have massive impact on the quality of the bar. So also that, that high really fiber, maybe it'd be hard to eat. Like you can't eat too many of the There's, bars. There are certain fibers that react that way and there are certain fibers that don't. So it, we tested a lot of them. The first one that we had was just an absolute nightmare. We migrated away from that. Um, and then that one had, um, it was just too high in carbohydrate. And so we ultimately moved to um, a third one, which ended up being the sweet spot. But um, yeah, you have to be super careful. You have to have a lot of people try the bar. Um, like who do you, do you call like a chemist and say, Hey, can you test 10 fibers for me and tell me which one's best? No, when it came to that, cause you're talking about like gastrointestinal distress, uh, for that you need real people and you just need to get a whole bunch of people to eat them. My wife happened to be the canary in the coal mine because she has a very, I'm sad to report compromised microbiome. So if she could eat it, we always knew we were good. Um, so, but we would give it to everybody in the company. Every time we were trying it, any friends we could get, we would each, when it was, you know, very small company, we would each see what our tolerance was. Can you eat one bar? Can you eat two? Can you eat three, four, five? Like, where is that breaking point where it, it stops either being fun for you or the people sitting near you? And, and, uh, obviously at the time when you started it, you were piggybacking on top of an already big industry. People realized they needed, um, protein in, condensed, you know, high density doses for whether it was weightlifting or energy for the day or you're busy and you need like a quick meal, you get a protein bar. I always find with protein bars, they're like too chewy. And and as you point out with the, they're not always as nutritious as they claim. And and the protein itself, depending on what kind of protein they use, there might be dairy like with whey protein, it might not be as nutritious protein as as many people say. I don't know what kind of protein you were using. Yeah, so that comes down to everybody's looking for something different. And when we started, I still can't believe this is true, but when we started, people were debating whether or not a calorie was a calorie. Meaning, you know, does a calorie of sugar matter compared to a calorie that comes from, you know, a vegetable or from meat? And, and this is just eight years ago, this is 2010. Yeah. So literally, like it now, I think everybody agrees that's just absurd and that calories matter. Not only do calories matter, so like saying that you had red meat, not only does that matter, but what did the cow eat, right? So was it grain-fed? Was it grass-fed? All of that matters. Um, so now people are re really beginning to understand that not only the food source, but how it was grown matters. And then also the N of one. How do you respond to that particular thing? And there's so much variability. It's really, really crazy. And so now as the food industry changes, like everybody will say, okay, this is you know X, Y, Z, but you need to try it. You need to see how you react to it um, because it, it really varies pretty dramatically. So, so if I, if you were to, well, I'll ask you when you were started making protein bars, but I was gonna ask you if you were to start today, but I'll ask you about 2010. How did you make something that you felt you would have your USP, your unique selling mm. proposition? Like what was, I go into a deli, there's 50 protein bars. I just need a quick, a, grab something quick, uh, what, what, what separated yours out? So it was really easy. We're the first protein bar that isn't a candy bar in disguise. So everybody else was just pouring sugar into it. They were, because of the equipment, they were, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they were doing that, not just that they were totally ignorant to uh, nutrition, but they were using a lot of sugar in their But how bars. do you know customers wanted, didn't just want that? They can well, claim to be nutritious. They can claim, oh, I'm eating nutritiously. I just had a protein bar, but hey, it tastes good. Like, how do you know? Sometimes what you think people need is not what they actually really, even what people tell you they want is not what they want. Yeah, 100%. And so we said, well, we don't know if there's going to be a market for this, but we know there's at least three people because there were three of us that founded the company. There's at least three people that want this bar. And so we made it and we didn't know, you know, if that, we never thought that just the bar alone would take us to over a billion dollars. We thought that, cause we always saw it as a food company. We're gonna make a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but the fact was that we knew bodybuilders and elite competitors understood that protein bars were junk before we came into the marketplace. So our whole thing was go after them, give it to people that we don't have to explain it to, where all they have to do is turn it over, read the ingredients, eat it, 
And then they'll say, this is, this is unlike anything else that's out there. The macronutrient profile is off the charts. The ingredients are top notch, but it tastes amazing. And that was the big USP was people either had a bar that was healthy for you from an ingredient standpoint, but it tasted like cardboard, or they had a bar that tasted amazing. I mean, there were some that tasted like Snickers bars, but they were, from an ingredient standpoint, almost identical to a Snickers bar, just with some protein thrown in. And believe it or not, we're going to talk a lot about impact theory. That's actually the main thing I want to talk about, your your current media business and the, and the message you so powerfully spread. And... Uh, but I am just fascinated by this. And I'll go uh, as long on this as you want. So so I have two things I want to unpack there. So let's say you have that unique thing. You can go to the store. Look, all these other bars you're selling, junk. You're Whole Foods. You should be selling something nutritious or whoever it is you're pitching. But everything still boils down to, to shelf space. So you, let, let's say, again, you had some testimonies from bodybuilders, maybe even a famous bodybuilder or two. How do you get the, the shelf space? Yeah. So, I mean, we can do like, I, I am happy to sit here and we can do a whole masterclass on this. It's actually really interesting to me. So, um, we don't have to do that. I just, no, no, no. I mean, I just want you to know, like we can go super deep on this, whatever you want. Cause so, Whole Foods was buying regionally at that time from what yeah, I understand. Bananas, and, absolutely bananas. And so you have to kind of show each one, each region that this is the one you want. And then I guess you were selling probably in GNCs and other places, yep. uh, which did buy nationally from what I understand. So how did you, like, what was your first big deal that you were like, hey, this is going to work? Yeah, this is the key. And anybody out there that wants to start any kind of business, uh, maybe not any, but most, certainly food, here's the answer. Go online first. Build your business there. Stores know that they're kingmakers, but it doesn't need to be that way anymore. And when they believe that they're the kingmaker in the relationship, they will negotiate as such. And so what happened was, we were going to GNCs, we were going to the Ralphs and the Krogers and all of that and saying, hey, we want to be on your shelves. And they would give us terms that were absolutely insane. And there was just no way we were going to sign it. We're like, this is barely above break even. It doesn't even make sense. So we just kept telling them no, 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 no. We told them no for over a year. At one point, we finally had to hire somebody to tell them no in a nicer tone of voice because it was we were beginning to damage the relationship. But we knew Every day we're getting stronger. Every day more and more people are walking into retailers and they're saying, hey, I eat this Quest bar, but I have to order it online. I want to buy it in your store. Why don't you carry them? And so then it became this, well, they won't let us carry them. So we were building all this buzz around the brand. We were marketing socially, which nobody was doing back then. How, how were you doing that? Like, A, how did you, like if someone went on Amazon and say, oh, I want to buy a box of protein bars, why would your bar show up? We were, we were such a new company. Well, the irony is the dynamics have changed a lot since we launched. So Amazon wasn't a huge part of our strategy in the beginning. In the beginning, people were still buying things on an individual website, which now I would say your plays are, if you want to go online, go through Amazon. That's going to be 90% of your online sales. And if you want to go retail only, go retail only, but make that a part of your pitch. Tell retailers, I'm going to be, um, you know, I'm committed to the retail channel. I'm not going to be selling online. And you can really have an interesting strategy there, but I think it's a far weaker one. So if I were going to do it now, in no uncertain terms, I would be doing an online play. I would build my business that way. I would be doing it through my own website. I'd be doing it through Amazon. But most importantly, I would have a massive social presence. I would build a community and I would make sure that I was adding value to that community, not just with the product, but with whatever social content that I'm pumping out. So like, for instance, uh, videos about nutrition, videos with bodybuilders, bodybuilding techniques, maybe talking about uh, high-protein diets. And well, the let's, say, of- let's say I was going to do Quest over again. First of all, I'd have a really big focus on fat, and I'm going to start telling stories about why fat matters, and I'm going to go way beyond bodybuilding. So bodybuilding's ultra-niche, and I don't, while it was great for us in the beginning because it really showed these people care about their bodies and they get tremendous results. So you know that you can trust it for something nice and simple like weight loss. But if I were trying to differentiate myself now, I would be going after something in ketogenics and I would be telling stories about people who've had not only weight loss on ketogenics, which is amazing, but longevity, anti-cancer properties, possibly there's a, I mean, I don't want to make claims here, but like I would be talking about what's being talked about in the scientific literature about the power of fat, about the power of ketogenics, we'd be telling stories. Like there's this woman, um, her foundation is called Max Love. And her son, Max, had uh, what was considered to be terminal brain cancer. She put him on a ketogenic diet and he's been in remission for, I don't know how many years now. And she tours around talking about That's it. That's amazing. So he didn't, um, did he first go through chemo and all that or did she I avoid? don't remember how much of that they did. If they preempted that by shrinking the tumor through ketogenics or what. And unfortunately, I just don't remember the details of the story that well. I mean, I mean, why 
why does the brain need sugar at all if everybody would be so successful with a ketogenic diet? Well, here's the fascinating thing. The brain doesn't need sugar. So you can, the brain can survive on ketones. So you can, um, uh, this stuff gets really complicated in terms of the body. Is You're always going to have some sugar in your bloodstream. So it, you'd be hard pressed to get your blood, um, your glucose levels to zero. Uh, but there have been documented cases of people that have high presence of ketones and their glucose is in what would be considered a terminal range. So sub 20, um, but they're able to get in that and not suffer, you know, fatalities and things because the brain is being protected by the presence of ketones. Now I can sort of give you the, the high level stuff for really deep analysis on why no, keto works at that level. There's no, no, that's people. okay. But I, but I'm curious, Okay, you have a story to tell, and you're able to to tell it. So do five billion other people who are who are arguing every day about the Supreme Court on the internet. How do you get your message to to rise higher than than just the sh how do you become the signal versus the noise? Yeah. So one, it has to be real. So your product really has to work. Two, you have to get people that are changed by that product, that are moved by it. It solves some problem for them. Uh, solving a problem, I'll call the the minimum barrier to entry. And then the real money is it solved a problem for them. And now it's given them like reason to be evangelized. So take Max Love, for instance. Part of the reason that they responded to our ketogenic line of stuff was that, um, in fact, I'll, I'll tell a different story. I don't remember who said this, but we made these keto cookies. And this woman had a child who um, was on a ketogenic protocol, either for anti-cancer or for seizures. I don't remember which. And um, she had never been able to send him to school with a cookie. And so she always felt terrible because kids teased him for what he was bringing to school and his lunch. And so finally one day she got to put a cookie and she wrote us this letter and she said, I was crying because your cookie made me feel like a better mom. And I was just like, whoa, like that's the kind of stuff. When you've got people out there telling those stories, like what she's saying is Quest made me feel like a better mom. You, you, like, you can't ask for a better testimonial than that. So having something that's real and then knowing how at a social level, how to give those people a voice, how to connect with them, how to share their story, how to make them feel good about you as a company. They know what your values are. They know what you stand for. Um, and then you just have to be there at the ground level doing all the right things. You've got to be hustling. You've got to be at trade shows. You've got to be touching people. You've got to be doing rad things for people. Like that's that's our mantra is do rad things for people. Evangelize them at every so, touch So point. do rad things for people because those are stories, for right? Sure. It's And you t you've talked about this in your podcast. It's everybody's living in the comfort zone because it's comfortable. Why shouldn't they live in the comfort zone? But getting outside of that comfort zone is where is where you're able to do rad things for people. That's how people recognize that they're rad because very few people are outside there in, right. in the heat. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say 
the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And what's interesting, the reason I wanted you to go through this story, and I'm not quite done with it yet. The reason I wanted you to go through this story is at a meta level, you take these same principles of storytelling and excellence and growth, and you you tell that story to build Impact Theory, your new media company, which we're going to get to. But Quest, um, I just want to know personally, like after you know you have these years of success, you build up the culture, you gradually are able to say, okay, this is a company that's a machine now and surviving on its own. I, I've done it enough. I've worked 100 hours a week enough. And by the way, a comment on that. Everybody sort of thinks, oh, I'm going I'm to do the 80-20, you know, the four-hour work week. I think they miss the point of Tim's four-hour work week. He doesn't work four hours. He works 80 but it's 20 times the right four. Right. So you got you got to just eliminate, you got to work smart instead of work hard, but you still got to put in the time. There's, there's really no, I don't think there's a way to avoid it. No. You got to do what you love and there's shortcuts in doing what you love, but one of those shortcuts is not skipping, you know, being on the beach all the time. Totally. So and what I always tell people is you have to work long, hard, and smart. And people say, well, if I'm working hard and I'm working smart, why do I have to work long hours? And the easy answer is because you're going up against me and I'm doing all three and I'm going up against the other people that are doing all three. And the reality is if there's something left on the table for someone else to do, they will do it. And when you collide, they will win. Well, well, I think your answer is correct. Like if, uh, if a store or if, uh, I don't know if some brand was trying to choose between you and a competitor, you're always going to win. If you have, if you have the more hours, cause you'll have the more knowledge, you'll have the more answers for them and more people and, and so on. Um, but the other reason is you work more because you love it. <laughs> like the work never ends. I'm sure I'm assuming with impact theory, um, because it's so aligned with your theories about excellence and, and peak performance and so on. When do you, when are you not working on it? You're working on it right now. I'm sure you're going to be working on it at Comic-Con the rest of this week. You, I'm sure when you go to sleep, you're thinking about it. So when do you ever stop working on impact theory? Yeah, I, I really don't. And um, that- If you're climbing a mountain with your wife, are you not working on impact theory? You probably right. are. Yeah, yeah, in some ways. And it's it's pretty rare that we even take time to just do things that aren't even obviously working on it. But the, the key is what you said is so true. And I want people to hear that because I'm not like the guy that says get up and grind and just you know, drive yourself into the ground. I'm the guy that says, love your life. And oh, the irony will be that when you really love what you're doing, you want to do it a lot. And so I work exactly as much as I want to work. So I love what I do. It gives me more energy than it takes. And that's what I always tell people. That's your barometer. Whatever you're doing, is it giving you more energy than it takes? If it doesn't, then you're doing the wrong thing or you're at least not doing it the right way. And if it's giving you more energy, then the more you engage with it, the more fun you're having, the more like you get excited about the dream or what you're trying to do. And it's just awesome. I, and I think this is related to, I keep foreshadowing like a thousand topics. I hope, so, I hope Jay, you're keeping track of all the topics I'm supposed to talk to Tom about now. This kind of what you just said sort of foreshadows, uh, you know, Carol Dweck's mindset, mm. you know, kind of a growth versus fixed mindset, which is really the difference between an employee and and someone who's going to change the world with the growth mindset. So uh, on on Quest, as you got successful, and uh, you know you said you had an exit, you pulled money out of it. 
I don't know, what's it like to drive to work in a Toyota Prius and then suddenly be massively wealthy? It, it's a trip, I won't lie. So there was a... That, that's the interesting no thing. No offense to Toyota or people who drive a right, Prius. Of course Power not. to you. The fascinating thing was that it literally happened in a moment. So it was... I was obviously making more money and making more money as we got bigger, but it was all sort of within the realm of a normal high-end salary. Well, and I always say you can't build wealth from a salary. There's no way. Because A, the tax system is structured against people with an income. That's kind of a technical reason. But also people tend to spend and plan for what they make you kind of either have to make money in chunks like you did or a diversified amount of income streams right. so things surprise you and it's it's actually harder to plan to spend right. the money so <laughs> so you so you're able to accidentally save yeah that you sounds know? about right but but so so yeah you you got somebody came along and said hey we'll give you you know, X amount of lifetimes worth of money to get the hell out of Quest. You took it, and what'd you do the next day? Uh, well, so this is really important to me and my identity. So literally, the the money hit the bank account. I don't know, like eight in the morning or something like that. And my wife and I were in the gym, and uh, we're hitting refresh, 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 because it was like, all right, guys, it's it's been wired. It should you know be there in the next thirty minutes or whatever. Fresh, refresh, refresh, and then boom, you're rich. I mean, it was so bizarre. And I said, and now I'm going to work. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I said, the very core of my identity is this is not about money. So why would I not go to work the same as normal on the day that I get money? And so for me, it was like, if you went to the team and said- Wait, 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 are you divorced? No, no, man. My my wife and I went did on. She to go to work with you that day. She did. Yeah, she wasn't happy about it. I'll be really honest. She <laughs> wanted she to say? take. She wanted to take a moment to celebrate, and that's not my strong suit. To to me, it's a, it's a question of identity. Everything is a question of identity. How did and you resolve it then? How did you say no? We'll celebrate. I, I yeah. I said we'll have to find another time. I'm going to work. Like it's just that important to me. And she understood. She didn't love it. Like she would have played the day a little bit differently. Uh, but my wife is beyond gracious and understanding, and uh, is is just ride or die for the vision. So and she she has said she'll never ask me to not be myself. So she got it. She understood that that was important to me. That's really great. She'll never ask you to not be yourself. Yeah. Do you think that's an important qualification? 1,000%. For me, it, it literally could be no other way. And so what if, though, you had a flaw that you were in denial about? That's interesting. So one, I trust my wife implicitly. So if she said, look, I think that this is a flaw. I don't think it's an advantage. I don't think it's a part of your identity that you should keep. I think that this is something you should really look at and jettison. I would look at that so seriously, and I may come to the conclusion that she's wrong, but honestly, that's never happened. So um, usually if she asks me to really look at something like that, she is 100% right. Like what, what, give me an example. So I don't get angry very easily, but once I get angry, I stay angry for, at the beginning when she called me out on it, days. Like, like when you get like when you can't be yelling for days, so you kind of shut down and be yeah, quiet. Exactly, exactly. I just don't want to talk about it. I exactly. I shut down. I go do my thing. I'm cold, distant, um, all of that. And she said, "Yeah, you've never once gotten out of that and gone. Well, I'm really glad that I was mad for you know whatever period of time." And I was like, "You know, what? you are absolutely right." And so I went down this whole path of coming up with a way to get myself out of that, um, and changed our relationship. And it's been a pretty powerful tool that I've used in a lot of ways in business, but it definitely started just to want to be a better husband. A, a lot of this, what you're talking about with Quest, the money, the relationship, there's kind of this meta thinking aspect, which is at first you could think, okay, how do we make a protein bar? How do we get sales? How do we crush the competition? But then there's meta level of thinking like, okay, well, I did something wrong with the culture of the company. I need to kind of tinker now, not with the protein bar, but with the company itself. And it's the same thing you just mentioned with the relationship. Like the relationship's great, quote unquote, you know, i.e. the protein bar is great. And uh, but now I've got to tinker on something, you know, it, it not about my wife or but but about the relationship is how I interact with the relationship. So there's like this meta level of thinking that has to happen. But you have to cultivate a certain um, humility first. You can't have a. It's very hard to have as a goal humility. So where? What do you think? Where do you think that started? 
Well, humility for me is is the easiest thing in the world because I'm really not that bright. So I make mistakes all the time. Is that false humility? No, 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 for real. And so I'll, I'll walk you through, and this this is like the core of my message, and I really want people to hear this. There is a, I'll call it a, a minimum requirements from an IQ standpoint. Without it, you'll never be successful. So I'm not saying that like intelligence doesn't matter, and I'm not saying that I'm outright dumb. I'm just saying that when you look at, the people that have had like really tremendous success, some of it has been born from raw intelligence, which I will put my partners in that position. They're, they have raw intelligence. They, they can process data faster than I can. There's just no two ways about it. So I got a 990 on my SATs. I took it twice. That's my combined score. My own mother quietly assumed I was going to fail when I went away to college. Um, I just have always had to um, work harder than everybody else to sort of get the same grades or whatever. And I remember one time, this is a quest, a uh, copywriter gave me something to read and I'm, I'm reading it and he goes, um, what's wrong? And I'm like, what do you mean what's wrong? And he was like, well, you're obviously rereading it over and over and I'm just not sure what it is that's not resonating. And I was like, nope, that's just how slow I read. So people literally can't believe how slow I read because I and painfully slow. Are you reading. dyslexic? Nope. I'm just literally like with. I say this as neutrally as I can. I'm just not that bright. So it's like you know. I just not, don't I'm, believe it. You're you're about to you're about to break down neuroscience for me at a okay, atomic now level. This, this this gets fascinating. So now, okay. So if if we can, which of course people have a hard time. It's like when you see somebody with six pack abs and they say, "I used to be a hundred pounds heavier." It's like you call BS until you see the before and after photo. But what's what's the before and after photo of a, a mind, right? That becomes really difficult. But I can tell you stories. So when I started in business, first of all, I was hired as a copywriter, and I was the only person in the office that didn't have a window. And then it, I would get on conference calls, and I would say exactly one thing on the conference call, and that one thing was goodbye. And I remember I used to get so excited because I was finally going to get to be able to speak. And the reason that I didn't get to speak other than to say goodbye was I didn't know what the hell was going on. I didn't understand business. I am not a born entrepreneur in any way, shape, or form. I definitely meet minimum requirements, though. I am smart enough. Okay, so once you're smart enough, you can learn anything you want. You just have to put in the time. So my secret power is I want to grow as a person so badly, like that's when, if you ask me, what is the reason we're here? What's our mission in life? You know, all of that to me is, okay, humans are the ultimate adaptation machine. More than any other species, we can adapt to our environment or we can adapt to stressors. So you can put yourself in any environment, you can get good at it if you have the will to do the work. So I have the will to do the work. So if you wanna say that that, the, the thing that people should focus on with me is I know how to want something. I know how to start where it's just, I'm interested and turn it into an all-consuming blaze of desire. Now it's cultivated and I believe anyone can do it. You have to know how to fan the flames. You have to know how to self-congratulate. You have to know how to self-punish, all of that. But all I do is say, I'm gonna decide I want this thing because it's based on something real. There's a kernel of an enjoyment or something there, but I know how to turn that want into a desperate need. And base, once it's a desperate need, then I have the will to put the hours behind it to learn. Okay, so let's let's break that down because and this is this I promise now this will segue into impact theory because I have a lot of questions there. Um, a lot of times people want to learn something. Like let's say somebody wants to learn golf. They go out to the golf course, they they have a bad day, their very first day, and they say, Oh, I'm no good at this, which is again fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. How do you tell that person you can't judge? You can't judge your learning ability on how you did day one, because but but a lot of people are like that. I've I've seen it everywhere every day, mm -hmm. and and you know it, it's that difference between wanting to learn something and desperately wanting to learn something. Because when you want to learn something, you know there's that learning curve, but at the beginning of it, you suck and you're partially in denial because you don't know if you're going to be at the top of the learning curve ever or not. You only think you are. There's a, there's a little bit of ignorance that has to happen to be great at something. Like a, like a writer, writing is a great example. Let's say it takes 10 years to be a very good writer or a great writer. Uh, still that first year, that second year, you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm a great writer. I should be already at the top. You don't realize there's eight more years to go because the brain plays tricks on you when you have that desperate need to learn. So, so how do you, 
how do you get yourself? It almost sounds like you're programming yourself. You said you were an adaptation machine, but how do you get yourself from, hey, I'd like to learn to play the piano better to like, I'm desperate about, I suck now, but I'm desperate to learn how to play Stairway to Heaven on the piano before the month is up. So there's two things in there. So one is the ability to want something and and we can go down that rabbit hole. The other thing is that you have to get to the way things work. What is the nature of that thing? And so I studied the brain voraciously. And so to the point about, you know, you thought, oh, I'm going to break down the brain at a molecular level. Um, but I really only remember about 10% of what I read. So I just have to read that much that that 10% becomes meaningful and interesting. But I wish I remembered 90%. That would be amazing. Uh, and I see people that can learn just and retain much more than I'm able to. By the way, I mean, and it's hard to say these percentages accurately. 10% actually is a very, of, of remembering what you read is very impressive. I once asked, on this podcast, uh, Stephen Dubner was a co-author of Freakonomics. What percentage of a quality written nonfiction book do you remember right after you read it? And he said one to one and a half percent. Wow! And I think that and actually maybe I is shooting it. So, so I, I think actually that's a respectable number, and mm. then that's why people good books are worth rereading and totally. rereading. Um, so, so you know what? What do you do to even rem you know find the accurate? 10% that's worth reading in a book? Because it sounds like you have techniques for, for reading. I, I do. Um, I will say that instead of trying to come up with some fancy technique is read a book and when something hits you on a limbic emotional level, implement it immediately. And so the only trick I have is when something hits me, I remind myself to be changed by that. And being changed by something means simply you begin using it immediately. So it's, it's funny, like I... Uh, I do that with this podcast. So I try to figure out, I'll learn a lot. Like I'm learning a lot from you in this podcast, but I'm not going to go out and make my own protein bar. But before the end of this podcast, I'm going to try to figure out at the very least, what's the one takeaway. So when I walk out of this room, I'm doing something a little differently. Mm. So everybody here knows since I had, you know who Yuval Harari is? He wrote yeah, yeah. Sapiens. So we had him on. And of course I learned a lot about you know, I've already had him on before and we've talked a lot about his books and he's such a genius. But the one thing now I do every day is I no longer leave my home with my cell phone. I never carry around a cell phone because he doesn't. And I figure this guy's the smartest guy in the world. I'm not going to carry around a cell phone. And he explained why. We talked about a million other things, mm. but this, and I've took away other things, but that was something I implemented in my life, much to the annoyance of most people who know me now. Next time on the James Altucher Show. Most people's stories now are made up of their excuses first before they get to the point where you're at, where you're kind of saying, okay, now you find what you love and then you work really hard at it and get a growth mindset. Most people are, I'd like to be better at golf, but I just failed at it on my very first day, so I suck at it. Right. Here's the type of story people tell. They say, I'd like to do x but like for instance i'd like to start my own company but and then they give a, a, a whole story that after the words that come out after the but that's actually their story right how do you how do you get past that but <laughs>